Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are really, really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm very excited. We're going to be hearing from B.A. Shapiro, who will be sharing the first pages of her latest novel, Metropolis. Good morning, Barbara. Hello. It's so great to be here. Yes. And if you're actually watching this, you can see that Barbara is properly attired in her morning, slick morning pajamas, (laughs) (laughs) which is exactly, exactly what we intend. Okay. B.A. Shapiro is the award-winning and New York Times bestselling author of nine novels, including Metropolis, The Collector's Apprentice, The Muralist, and The Art Forger, which won the New England Book Award for Fiction, among other authors. She holds a PhD in sociology and has directed research projects for a residential substance abuse facility, worked as a systems analyst, headed the Boston office of a software development firm, and served as an adjunct professor teaching sociology and creative writing. So she's done a lot of really cool other things, and I wanted to bring that to the conversation too. She says in her bio that she likes writing novels the best out of all those things, and she splits her time between Boston and Naples, Florida. Okay, Barbara, uh, let's hear from you about Metropolis and just if you can just give us a quick summary of the book to give us context for the pages that we will be listening to. Uh, well, the book takes place in Boston and it's about six different people, male, female, black, white, Christians, Jews, atheists, all kinds of different people who have no connection to each other outside of the fact that they are connected to what is metro what is actually the Metropolitan Storage Warehouse, but in my book is Metropolis Storage Warehouse. And uh, there is an an accident when somebody falls down the elevator shaft and we don't know who who it is who fell down. We don't know what happened to him. Was it, you know, was it suicide? Was it murder? Was it, what, what was it? And so each of these different people all have their own problems and their own stories, and they get tangled up with this particular mystery. And as a result, friendships are formed, enemieships are formed, uh, love relationships are formed, and everybody's lives are turned upside down. Right, great. Okay, let's hear from these pages. Okay, so each chapter is told from the viewpoint of one of the six characters. So we open with Zach, May 2018. It's Rose's fault. It's Etna's fault. It's Otis Elevator's fault. All of the above and none of the above. Zach Davidson hovers at the edge of the crowd, but at 6'2", it's tough to blend into the background. The auctioneer doesn't know Zach, is the recipient of the money from the forthcoming sales, and he wants to keep it that way, although he doesn't know why this matters. He isn't even sure why he's come, unless it's some perverse form of self-flagellation. Most of you know the rules, the auctioneer booms in her booming voice, but I'm going to, but I'm going to go over them quickly. Due to foreclosure of the building, the contents of 22 abandoned storage units are up for sale. 
The minimum bid is $100, cash only. I'll open the door to each unit and you'll have five minutes to see what's inside. And then I'll start the auction. You may not cross the threshold. You may not touch anything. You may not ask me any questions because I don't have any answers. You take it all or you leave it all. Then we move on to the next unit. Is that clear? There's a murmur of acceptance which echoes off the concrete walls and floor, the steel reinforced ceiling. They're standing outside of Rose's old office, the woman who, sh who Zach shouldn't have relied on. Every direction he looks in pisses him off. Rose's empty desk, the dim bulbs, the peeling paint. He turns his back on the yellow police tape stretched across the elevator. It's been almost four months since it happened and still no one knows for sure if it was an accident, a suicide or a murder attempt. Could be any of them, but it doesn't make all that much difference. He's screwed any which way. Damn elevator, damn rose, damn hard luck. He follows the auctioneer as she marches down a corridor lined with heavy metal doors, each imprinted with a round medallion containing a large letter M, intertwined with a smaller S and W, Metropolis Storage Warehouse. 123 years old, six stories high, 90 feet wide, 480 feet long, almost 400 storage units of various sizes and shapes. Some even have windows. Zach knows it well. The potential bidders are a mixed bunch. Two men in ratty clothes smell as if they, they've been sleeping on the street, which they probably have. Another three look like lawyers or real estate developers. And there's a foursome of gray hairs who appear to have just stepped off the golf course. A gaggle of middle-aged women in running shoes sends stern glances at a girl clutching a pen and a pad of paper who seems far too young to be the mother of the children she's yelling at. Male, female, tall, short, fat, slim, white, black, brown, rich, poor, clever, and not so clever. Like the inner recesses of Metropolis itself, a diverse assemblage that stands in contrast to the archipelago of cultural and economic neighborhoods Boston has become. Zach has owned Metropolis for 10 years, bought at a ridiculously low price in a quasi-legal deal that looked to be the way out of the consequences of his bad choices. Although it still belongs to him, however, temporarily, he has no idea what's behind any of the doors. The building had a well-deserved shady reputation when he purchased it, and he concluded he was better off not knowing what people were storing in their units. In retrospect, a little prying might have averted this mess. The auctioneer, a beefy woman with biceps twice the size of Zach's, takes a key from her backpack and dramatically twists it into the lock. Then she slides the 10 foot wide fireproof door along its track on the floor to reveal a murky room, lumpy with shadowy objects. She reaches inside and flips on the light. Take it off, leave it off, she cries, five minutes. Revealed by naked light bulbs hanging from the 11 foot ceiling, number 114 is decidedly dull. An old refrigerator, an electric stove, a bunch of mismatched chairs, a couple of mattresses, clothes overflowing from open cartons scattered all over the floor. There are at least two dozen sealed boxes lined up against the far wall and a four-foot pile of empty picture frames ready to topple. 
Everything is coated with what appears to be decades of dust. Zach groans inwardly. He needs every cent he can squeeze out of this auction, and no one's going to buy any of this junk. But he's wrong. After the auctioneer starts rippling her tongue in an impenetrable torrent of words, people start raising their hands. When the contents go for $850, Zach is flabbergasted. The other units surely contain more impressive stuff than this and should generate even higher bids. Some do, some don't, and two are completely empty. Right. Great. I love that. Um, I just want to note here, just in case I don't get back to it later. So we're in this wonderful setting. Um, I mean, it's almost, it bends almost, and maybe this is just my interest in haunted houses, but it bends almost this way that we don't know what is waiting behind the doors. There's a shady uh, reputation to the place. Um, there's all this expectation and there's death or murder in this place as well. So it kind of is kind of a substitute haunted house that you're using as, as a setting, which is fun. Um, and as we're waiting, we don't know a whole lot about Zach, but since we've started with him, I think we're we're obviously interested in him. And we obviously, when, when those doors are opened, and honestly, these sorts of uh, storage units are my personal nightmare because hoarding <laughs> and all that stuff just completely freaks me out and I don't understand it at all. But I do know that people are interested in this kind of thing. It's become quite a cultural um, activity that people make money off of. So you're also tapping into that, something that we kind of know and kind of want to look at, but it's also like a bad, bloody accident. So we don't want to look at it. So it's, there's a lot of interest here. And so she says, take it all, leave it all. She cries five, five minutes, lies the 10-foot-wide fireproof door along its tracks on the floor to reveal a murky room, lumpy with shadowy objects. So we're already leaning forward. What's in there? She reaches inside and flips on the light. And then if you look at the sentence construction, revealed by naked light bulbs hanging from the 11-foot ceiling, number 14 is decidedly dull. So we're still waiting at the beginning of that sentence for something exciting to be there, Right. Um, but and the, the sentence actually is a perfect sentence in terms of writing suspense, um, because we don't have the subject of the sentence until the end of the sentence. And so you're kind of playing with us a little bit there, um, which I love. And there are a lot of other, other examples of that throughout. Uh, but just starting with the long verb uh, phrase and then giving us the subject at the end and we don't know what's revealed yet um, works perfectly to keep us interested in what is revealed. Okay, so, and you actually didn't read the um, newspaper, short little oh. newspaper article at the very beginning, um, but just so if you guys look at the link that we have in the podcast notes, she includes a very short newspaper article about that something has happened in this storage warehouse, there's been an accident, critical injuries after a fall down an elevator shaft, um, they don't really know what's happened, and then we go into... Um, the first chapter. Uh, was this always your first chapter? No. <laughs> I have uh, written uh, about 14 novels, and uh, I cannot remember a single one where my first chapter was my first chapter. <laughs> You are just a revision queen, um, yes. and you yes. also approach structure with that kind of mathematical <laughs> statistician's mind, um, which I've always loved, and I always love hearing you talk about that. Um, did you 
did you start in a different point of view? Did you know this was going to be a six point of view novel when you started it? I um, had always wanted to write a novel that had multiple points of view of people who didn't know each other, but were drawn together by some outside incident. And then people who never would have met in their normal lives, because we all live in our little echo zones, um, you know, were forced to interact with each other and learn about each other. And, um, you know, with some kind of mystery involved. Uh, so I knew there were going to be six characters. I had actually, there were originally seven. Uh, most of them had different names from the names that they have now. Yeah. Um, a number of them had different professions. Um, but I had started with one character, Liddy, who had a unit in, in Metro, who has a unit in Metropolis. And what it is, it's a, a restructure of her children's bedrooms because her husband would not let her bring the children's things to the new high-rise apartment condo that uh, he pretty much forced her to move into. So she goes into her kids' unit. It's set up you know, with desks in their cork boards and all kinds of stuff. And she sits there and visits them. So that had been the original opening. Um, and you but, actually, so for our listeners, if, if, if we'd had time to keep her reading, we actually see that scene. She calls it a bizarre tableau on the fifth floor. She writes as a tiny and perfectly immaculate unit. Is that the one? A neatly made single bed, an intricately carved roll top desk, a chair, a small bureau. And then there's another unit that seems staged as if people are, are living here. So again, that sense of haunting. So um, is again, right here from the get go. When further in, in the first chapter, basically we are introduced to every character because Zach sees these units of the four people who are going to be the major characters. And he refers to Rose, who is the office manager. So what I wanted to do in the first chapter was without being you know, heavy handed, introduce all of the players in seven or eight pages, whatever it is. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. By by showing us their storage units. Um, and then and later the reader can figure out, oh, that's why that unit is full of photography equipment. That's why this one has the desks of these right. two teenage kids. You know, so that was just nice. a fun thing. You know, we have to amuse ourselves. <laughs> Yes. And you're also, but you're also launching questions for the reader um, right. and then letting those questions sit that keep us turning the pages. Um, and it works marvelously. So Zach, um, then because he has a special interest in all of these units and because he's there at the auction that kind of put the book to start in his point of view, um, his voice is kind of funny, or at least the third person narrative that bends a little bit to his voice. Um, you know, he talks about whose fault it is, uh, you know, the perverse form of self-flagellation. Um, and you do uh, move into um, interior monologue here. It's about the fourth paragraph down, I think. Uh, we kind of 
what I love is that you kind of layer in a lip, just a little exposition, but as the scene is ongoing. So it's been almost four months since it happened. Um, and notice that it is not yet defined. So again, it launches another question for us to keep going. We don't know if it's an accident, attempted murder, or even suicide, could be any of them. But is it for, for Zach, at least, it doesn't make all that much difference. He says, he's screwed any which way. Damn elevator, damn rose, damn hard luck. And so that is an interior monologue. So even though we've got a third person point of view, we've actually moved into his language that he's thinking at the time. And again, that's another example. And I'm trying to point those out so people know that they can play these tricks, particularly in third person, um, where the um, character's voice silences the narrator's voice and we're able to move very it's it's, it's referred to as, as moving very close narrative distance wise to the character and i love that the way i think about it is that there actually isn't a narrator there is only mm. the character and so there are six characters in the book and all of them have their own voice and they all think differently so yeah. one of what the theme of the book is that, you know, it has to do with social class and the advantages and disadvantages that you have given the class you're born into, you have no mm -hmm. control. over. So part of what I was playing with was the voice of the class, which gave each character a particular level of education. Mm -hmm. So Zach, it's upper middle class, you know, educated guy. Um, Serge didn't even finish high school. Rose lives in one of the working class neighborhoods of Boston and, you know, isn't intellectual at all. Um, then Marta is working on her PhD dissertation and Jason is a lawyer. And so each one of them has what I hope is a very distinct way of both thinking and talking and describing things. So for example, I tried to get into the head of the character and think what are the things that they would notice in the environment? Yeah. So for example, um, Rose is much more interested in how people dress and kind of little statusy things. So that's what she notices. Uh, Serge is a photographer. So he's always noticing things as they have to do with the juxtapositions of other things and how he would frame it. And so, and so in order to do that, it takes a combination of it's, and all of these are written in very, very close third. Um, yes. Very. So it's almost like first, but it's not. This is this is a piece of advice. Maybe if you want to play with it, sometimes I write my characters in first person first mm -hmm. because I feel like you can get more inside of them. And mm -hmm. then if I don't want to continue, like in this, if I had six first person voices, it would have been ridiculous. And then change it back because you retain a level of insight from first person, I think, that mm -hmm. allows the third person, it gives you the freedom to make the third person that close, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, yeah, this is something really important to think about. So this is, we're talking about third person limited and what she's really doing is third person limited serial, meaning that she focuses each chapter on a different point of view. And if you're doing third person limited serial, even just third person, you can choose the narrative distance that you want to use with it. And she's choosing close. And that's actually really common in contemporary novels to really differentiate the voices between the different uh, points of view. And, and also it's important that you, and this is something that fiction does really well, is that you're really warping the reality of that chapter through the character's point of view. Everything is all, everything is filtered through that. And you can't forget that. Whereas if you're using omniscient point of view throughout, you might have a stronger omniscient narrator voice that um, lifts above the characters more and is a little more consistent throughout. Um, but you can do it either way. And then you can actually play with both going back and forth. Um, so you said doing first person that would have been impossible. Um, and it's that because of the weight that readers think, well, this doesn't sound like their voice. I mean, it, it puts so much more importance on that individual voice. Um, no, I meant it just structure structurally. If mm -hmm. every if every chapter started with I, then the reader would have a difficult time figuring out exactly who it was. And the one thing that I try not to do is in my writer's group, we call them I bumps, is to bump the reader out of the story. And if they're confused for a minute, who's talking? What is this? Um, then they bumped out of your story. And I yeah. want to do everything I can to keep the reader inside the story, which is also another reason I don't use big words. I often will write a big word when I'm doing my first draft and then change it back to a smaller one because I don't want the reader to be bumped out of the story and they have to look up the word. Right, right. Um, and John Gardner talks about that as you don't want to wake the reader up from the narrative dream unless exactly. you're purposely trying to do it with like metafiction or some more experimental exactly. forms. Uh, but that's not what you're doing. So it's very good to follow through with your intentions. Um, okay, so uh, after we, as we move through this, um, again, I, I want readers to really look at how she's starting with a scene and giving us just a little enough of the exposition that we need, how long Zach has owned this, um, owned Metropolis, he's owned 10 years. Um, we get a little bit about what he wants, what he's desperate for here. So there's a sense of um, yearning here um, at, the, at the start. And so we kind of take part of that. Like, again, when you open up the storage unit, we kind of want him <laughs> to have something in there uh, that he discovers. So then as you continued um, the book, how did you determine which point of view you went into according to which chapter? And again, was it this math mathematician kind of structuring that you changed around a lot and um, constantly removing it? I did a lot of, of moving, but um, I wanted to follow, I mean, so the other five characters, their story is going on in real time. Zach's story is going on mostly four months, gets long, in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so doing that, the reader sees things that the characters don't know about yet. So in terms of suspense, 
it was really important for me to put each story vis-a-vis Zach's story in a particular place. Um, Also in terms of suspense to end the chapter with not only some kind of a sort of low level cliffhanger about that person, but also something. So each chapter addresses what happened in the past and then gives you little hints about what is coming in the future. So that when you get to the next chapter, there are questions answered by that chapter that the character didn't. Um, As you mentioned this, but as, as a, one of my guiding rules when I'm writing is to be aware of the questions in the reader's mind and to create questions that not only the long-term questions, but every scene should have some questions and every scene should answer some questions. So you're rewarding the reader by giving them some answers and then you're pulling them along by, uh, by holding out other answers. Right. Yeah. And I, and I do, this is something that you want to be careful about if you are workshopping your pages in front of a group, because the people in the group will ask those questions in the workshop and they will demand the answers right away. And it will feel like you have to answer those questions right away, which you do not, unless, unless the reader has no idea what is happening. Um, I mean, I once read a manuscript in which a character was on a drug trip and like, is there even a character here? I didn't even know what was happening. So that was, I was really lost. Um, But as long as you provide enough clarity about what is happening right in front of us, then you can launch those questions that, that are about the whys and the motivations and the reasons behind things and what will happen next and keep them questions. So be careful of that kind of workshop disease about answering people's questions right away. I mean, there's two different things. One is creating questions purposefully and the other is creating confusion. And again, confusion is the eye bump. So you don't want to do that. It can be a difficult, you know, I mean, I do... So probably every page of this book has been rewritten 20 times. Uh, I do six or seven drafts over. It takes me three to four years to write a book. And all of these things, you know, with an eye on all of these things all the time. And Mm -hmm. um, I have this image of my reader sitting in bed at night and he or she has to go to work the next morning. And my job is not to let them go to sleep. So that's where the questions come in. You know, what is it when you're reading a book that you don't want to put it down? Mostly it's because you want the answer of some question, big or small. I mean, a question can be, you know, is she going to, you know, go out and meet her friend tomorrow morning? Or the question can be, can he save the world? But whatever it is in the context of your book, in order to keep people up at night, when people complain to me, I was up all night reading your book. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Yes. You kept me up too late. Good. Yes. I think it's Ian Forrester who says that you cannot ignore the most basic urge that a reader has, and that is to know what happens next. 
And we will constantly be asking what happens next. And you can use that in your reader to keep moving forward. And that, um, as long as you're keeping us asking those questions, um, then we basically have a, a continuous kind of Scheherazade <laughs> type of game that you're doing to us. And, and again, I, I argue that all novels are mysteries or all stories are mysteries because they're launching these types of questions. Um, and then with the two, I mean, you basically have two timelines because you have Zach's point of view that's that's based in the present timeline. And then you have the other points of views that are catching up. Did you always decide to, um, how you wanted to do that? No, um, it came about probably in the second draft when I realized that I needed Zach's story to be first. And then at, that we would see what was happening and then go back and find out how we got to that place. Um, so it took a while to figure that out, but I will show you that I, this is, this is how I plan my stories. You're uh, showing us a bunch of colored cards. colored file cards. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and I move them around and each each different color here has to do with each different character and each of their stories. And so I moved them around a lot. But I had always been fascinated by the idea of timelines that merge because I'd written other books. Um, my last three books all were historical art mysteries. And I had characters in one point at one point in time and characters in another point in time, but I didn't have them interact. Um, mm. The idea that there were two timelines and then they merge. And then the whole last piece of the book, it's one timeline just appealed to me. So Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. No, it's just satisfying. It feels very satisfying. Yeah, just something oh. about it. Okay, um, I'm going to have to let you go, and I no, need to get our listeners to their own writing desk. So everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including the episodes from our past two writing challenges. We did a 50-day writing challenge in the fall and a 31-day writing challenge in March. Um, it almost killed me, but there's a lot of great information out there with a lot of great writers and teachers. And so I would go back and listen to those episodes. You can also find all of those on uh, any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. Okay. One last question, Barbara. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? Write them wrong. Do not write focus. Wrong. Write them wrong. It does. Not, the beauty of writing a novel is that you can write, rewrite anything. If you are trying to write the perfect three pages at the beginning of a novel, you will never get to page four because you can't write a brilliant first three pages of a novel until you know what the novel's about, until you know where you're going. So I always tell my classes, the two things that I recommend is to write it wrong and get your butt in the chair and stay there. So. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, everyone, it's time to get your butts in the chair and to write it as long as possible. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you. Um, this Thank you. is just such a wonderful novel, and I think it's got a lot to teach people. Um, and I know that it can get people excited about their own books. So thank you so much for joining us and spending your show.